you're out there on the highways, if you're within the sound of our voice, you're near to Big Cypress, Florida, WY2XKK 91.7 FM. They're calling it thin air. Yeah, it was cool waking up the next morning and seeing actually what things look like. You know, a lot of people, as you know, when we go to fish festivals, oftentimes get there at night. And then when you wake up in the morning, you actually can see what everything looks like. December 30th, uh, wake up and uh, it's amazing. Like it's, you know, Shangri-La, if you will. It's everybody's hanging out. You could walk anywhere around. You had Shakedown where you get food and people were just walking around, hanging out. And the vibe was just unreal. It was just nothing but positivity. You could walk up to somebody and, you know, get a chat going on. People were just partying all around. Uh, The weather was not too hot. So the site layout, I mean, it was beautiful. It was a work of art. Fish lyricist Tom Marshall is speaking somewhat euphemistically. Go figure. But the site layout at Fish's Big Cypress Festival was a work of art, on multiple levels. During episode three of After Midnight, Fish's Big Cypress Festival, brought to you by Osiris, we'll explore the 500 acres of campgrounds and art installations, stroll the avenues, duck down the alleys for some old-fashioned shakedown street folklore, and eventually make our way over to the mysterious circular concert field. We'll visit the Thin Air Radio trailer, check in with the WSVN news team, talk to band members and festival organizers, and unfold our map to fish at Big It's one thing to get together with a few of your friends and generate what theorist Hakeem Bey called a temporary autonomous zone. To get 50 or 100 or even 1,000 people together in a field somewhere and see what happens. It's another thing to do it way out on Alligator Alley, down the canal-lined Snake Road, and in a giant cattle pasture surrounded by swamp. Perhaps the most famous semi-permanent temporary autonomous zone in the United States these days is Burning Man which began on a San Francisco beach in 1986 and moved to the Nevada desert in 1990. These days, it draws over 70,000 people into a sun-parched lake bed for art and an ongoing experiment in transactional anarchy. It's a bit complicated these days, but in the summer of 1999, the population of Black Rock City, the site of Burning Man, was only a modest 23,000, spread across 80 acres, just about a third as many people as attended Big Cypress and about 15% of the space. Fish manager John Paluska remembered how the band provided fish heads with the lay of the land. And I remember the map we had that we handed out to everyone. One of my favorite things about Big Cypress was the little map that that opened up into a fairly large map with a ton of detail in it, including a map of the entire campground and venue areas uh, with all the streets named so that you could essentially put a little pin on the map and say, here's where I am. So, you know, one in the morning when you're slightly, you know, hazy about some of the details, <laughs> you could find your way back to your tent because it was 800, 800 acres, as I recall. It was a lot of land. Um, and, you know, I'm at like, and I think we named all of the roads in one direction after venue, venues, like one was Deer Creek and one was Red Rocks. The size of a playing card it unfolded elegantly into a 30-panel, double-sided guide to Big Cypress. Jack Motlow would hardly recognize his cow pasture. Its strange swamp-divided dimensions tamed into a grid of 379 numbered campground lots. Ten avenues ran north to south, and a dozen venue-named streets ran east to west. The map provided concert goers with hopefully impossible-to-lose directions to water sources, first aid, and their own tents complete with a helpful space for an attendee to write down their local address. And though they couldn't receive mail, they could send it out from a small and weird, but very genuine United States Post Office branch, zip code 33440. The campgrounds opened at noon on Wednesday, December 29th. By the time the traffic jam outside eased up, Big Cypress was the 10th biggest city in Florida. In fact, 
Big Cypress never sold out. Just as fish festivals were designed to be a little quieter than the average festival, they were also designed to be slightly emptier, as manager John Paluska recalled. We didn't have a formal cap from the tribe. We had sort of, our, in our minds, the cap was really more driven by overall capacity, the venue combined with some of the stuff we talked about, just the inherent pinch points that are involved in these things. And so 80,000 was kind of our pie in the sky. Like, boy, if we could get 80,000 people, that'd be amazing. And we probably shouldn't have anybody any more than that. And in our ideal world, and this was true with all of our festivals, as opposed to an arena where you kind of want to sell it out and just be able to say, hey, we sold that show out. Um, With the festivals, we never really wanted to sell out because we never wanted to turn anyone away, especially because they were in such remote locations. So if anybody showed up, we wanted them to be able to get in. Now, we also knew full well that if someone was going to travel to some really remote place and travel a long way to get there, they were, in almost all cases, going to lock down their tickets ahead of time. Event co-producer Dave Worland of Great Northeast Productions recalled the lack of formal cap as a relief. This place was the first place where we never had to worry about too many people. You know, Oswego, which was we had done a few months earlier, um, the numbers of people and the size of the space we had uh, were definitely at odds. Uh, and it, that was a real wake-up call to us, that we could never go to a place where we felt that we couldn't accommodate as many people as would want to come. So with Big Cypress, that was not an issue. Um, and I think the attitude of the fans, of the attendees, <clears throat> largely because we were on Native American land, sovereign land, I think had a lot to do with how successful it was. People were super responsible about cleaning up after themselves. Um, and I think they were so thrilled to be guests um, of the Seminoles. Uh, I think people were on their best behavior. The outside of the Big Cypress map featured a prominent invitation to tune into Thin Air, 91.7 FM, radio for a new breed. In some ways, the broadcast range of Thin Air marked the physical boundaries of Fish's temporary autonomous zone, an audible signal capable of being received by any common car stereo that you are now inside Fish's world. With music, news, and up-to-the-minute freakouts and sonic meltdowns going 24 hours a day, the station featured field reports from Rosie the Roving Reporter and Pals, dips into the band's archive, simulcasts of Fish's sets, and as the map advertised, your faithful host, Tad Cautious. I think John Paluska um, put it best when he said the radio station is like the kitchen at the party. Like, uh, it used to be people would just stop by, and it's it's usually been in a pretty central location. So if you're around the backstage compound, you stop in at the radio station. And, of course, like, that makes it so much more fun for the people who are on air. Um, people get to spin records or make requests or get on the mic. And, you know, rather than being a hermetically sealed you know, tank just broadcasting out. It can be very disorienting and, and alienating. But um, when there's people coming through and it's sort of like a living room environment um, and really like a party environment too, like when you get dance sets going um, and there's people dancing in the next room, shaking the trailer, you don't feel so alone. <laughs> All the radio stations kind of blur together because it, it's a very similar surrounding, um, like a wood panel inside of a construction trailer with um, fold-out tables and... Uh, you know, uh, record players, cassette decks, um, CD players, uh, a mixing board, um, microphones, what have you, and then just sort of all of the decorations that you can get from your travels there. Uh, And then, of course, over the course of the weekend, there's different signs you can put up on the walls and different decorations and memorabilia and empty cups. Known as Huevos Rancheros on air, Gabe Tessariero was part of the Vermont crew that had DJed at the station at previous festivals. You know, the musical vernacular was completely different in a lot of ways. Um, you know, the, the touch points musically that the band had and that the fans had, you know, were, were, were really different. So I always thought that those radio stations had... Um, were able to touch on all those different disparate musical sort of worlds and touch points and and really articulate them and kind of broaden them in a way that fans really appreciated. I think, you know, in the more sometimes in the mornings we would have like bluegrass sets and then 
you know, by the night, by the night, our the famous like overnight sets that we used to do that were just complete, you know, gobbledygook, psychedelic, freeform noise experiments, you know. So, and and kind of everything in between. So that it was like a, it really was like dream radio for people that were like fans of of music. Another thin air personality was Timothy Speed Levitch a fast-talking, long-haired New Yorker who built a reputation as one of the city's most far-out tour guides and philosophers. And in the years after Big Cypress, would go on to work with director Richard Linklater in Waking Life, and has more recently appeared on High Maintenance. Fish's influence on the jam scene would be well noted, but it would be outposts like Thin Air Radio that anchored Fish in their self-created scene into a wider world of arty weirdos, and an influence on a generation of arty weirdos that in turn crossed paths with Fish's sphere in the late 90s. John Paluska and the band had conceived the radio station as a way to communicate with the incoming crowd. But it took on new dimensions almost instantly. What we didn't anticipate was that this kind of core group would emerge right away at the Clifford Ball. Uh, all buddies from Burlington, super creative and dynamic folks um, who spent put a ton of time leading into the festival itself, creating tons of interesting, funny content and little bits and this and that and and obviously planning tons of amazing music, and then going out during the festivals and interviewing people and gathering all kinds of sort of right-in-the-moment documentary, sort of Veritas-style content, and then immediately coming back to the station and twisting it into some really cool bit. Um, The freeform radio that happened at those festivals, to me, is one of the most remarkable you know, kind of performance art, extended performance art pieces. At the, it was really, I, I, I just loved going and hanging out at the radio station during the festivals because it was just, it was so exciting and so um, seat of the pants the whole time in the best kind of way. DJ Huevos Rancheros remembered. We would send people out constantly to come back with more, just like go deep into the into the shit and come back with like just weird tape of of people do, doing weird shit and we would air, we would air it all sometimes we just mash it up into like weird mashups over with, combined with music but that was all like real time stuff we had Kuroda we had like some weird performance artist kid that was being super weird some of the sound bites and the air that we got from out on the lots where we would play back over the break beats <laughs> I'm here with Chris Kuroda, lighting designer for Fish. Hi. Hi, how's it going? Um, when, do you play the, with the lights off the band? Do you think of it like drums, like keyboards? I would say more than anything else. Like, uh, when I see on the mic, it's like The gates to the concert field wouldn't open until Thursday afternoon. But Fish made their first transmission the day before, performing their sound check at full concert volume so those in the campgrounds could hear it. They'd intended to broadcast it, as well as the whole festival, via thin air. But it turned out that the thin air transmitter caused feedback on stage, so it had to be shut down. Thanks to the taper who captured this, and all the tapers who recorded Big Cypress. Fish's sound checks had long been a private workshop for both songs in progress and the kind of inside joke goofs that occasionally carried over into the night's show. Without a crowd, the laid-back atmosphere not infrequently led to some of the band's most freeform jams that virtually nobody would ever get to hear. Starting at Lemon Wheel, their third festival, a year and change before Big Cypress, they'd begun to broadcast large parts of the sound checks over the festival radio station 
a virtual flip side to the semi-secret late-night improv sets that had also become a festival tradition. A crowd gathered outside the concert grounds, not yet open. Mostly, the band ran through some covers, but at the beginning and end, also slipped into that special soundcheck space. Flowing and bordering on ambient, at least by the standards of a rock quartet intent on making people dance, it was close to the type of improv featured on the band's recently self-released Sicket Disc, a mode of jamming that sometimes put Fish closer to experimental bands like Sonic Youth than the jam acts that had emerged in Fish's wake. Played to the enormous circular concert field at Big Cypress, empty and awaiting 75,000 fans, it was an invocation, a welcoming, and a prelude. There were subtle ways in which the sovereign territory of the Big Cypress Reservation came into play, as Dave Worland remembered. One of the things that was really uh, interesting to us and wonderful was the fact that uh, in, in, in the United States, most states, you have to separate people underage from people who can drink. And you have to separate them by double fencing, by beer gardens, and so forth. And we asked the Seminoles, we said, listen, uh, we really want to toast the millennium in the venue where everybody is uh, at midnight. Uh, and we want to know if we have to separate people, how, how do you want us to do it? And they said, what do you mean? How do you want us to do it? And we said, well, how, where should the beer garden? How many feet apart do we need to put fences? I said, what fences? What beer garden? We said, so we can mix everybody together and everybody can have a toast? They said, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, that was the vibe. Um, so I, it, it, was, it was a perfect situation. Um, and I think that a lot of it is, I, I mean, to me, I believe in karma. And I believe that, you know, this is the band's karma and the fans' karma. They have come through all of these experiences to celebrate this this once in a lifetime, really once in a thousand years event. Uh, it, it couldn't have been better. When concert goers made it through the epic traffic jam, as if finishing a long sea voyage, they came onto the city of Big Cypress, from the northeastern entry at Snake Road by the toll booths and box office near the intersection of Ninth and Knickerbocker. Fans might find their way to one of the camping zones. The concert field and stage were even further away, at the far southwest corner of the site. Inside these perimeters, a small lost civilization constituted itself for the last three days of the 20th century. For some first-hand reports, we'll send it over to Lynn Gordon from Channel 7 News and a team of our own eyewitnesses. Once inside, this place is amazing, like a small city, a sea of people, campers and tents, people selling things, just about anything you can think of. This campground spans more than a thousand acres, and organizers have been here since the beginning of December, getting this venue ready for New Year's Eve. Much like they did for the Grateful Dead, faithful fans flock from concert to concert, following fish around the country. There's entertainment, naked body painting, and people openly looking to buy drugs. According to Fishhead Lore, at Big Cypress, there was a strong emphasis on looking. We got in, set up the campsite, and, uh, you know, within a matter of a couple hours, we were, you know, cracking beers, and uh, we were on the, the hunt for uh, some flowers. And there was none to be had, literally none to be had. So we actually decided to split off into different factions to try to cover more ground. My crew was looking for weed, and we couldn't find that for anything. Nobody could. It was basically non-existent, and I think that's because everyone flew in and no one had brought any at the time. It was 1999. Um, so no one on lot had any, and it was kind of a despairing situation. So, it was mind-boggling, too. And then I remember, um, it started getting later, and I went around our car to pee, and I stumbled upon a fat quarter ounce. It was a bag just sitting there by the car. Clearly, someone had dropped it, and I stepped on it. I was praised like the goddess of Sheba. So we really couldn't believe it. And got to give a shout out to whoever dropped it. 
sorry and thank you. We were beyond stoked. Everybody was looking for marijuana. I remember a guy very distinctly. That's probably the most distinct memory I have outside of the shows um, is that there was a guy that was offering Keith on Shakedown and he was literally mobbed by dozens of people within seconds um, and sold out his Keith immediately. And then there was a guy who was selling, you know, your very intricate bongs that were, you know, this, you know, three or four feet high. And he was offering a hit if you bought a $300 bong. And there were people that were taking him up on that offer. We ran into this guy, a very, uh, you know, crusty, trustworthy guy who you'd want to uh, to do business with. He sat down Indian style and all three of us kind of hunched down, sat down in between a few tents. And he started bagging up or, or this green powder. And we had no idea what this was. I guess we were looking for, for Molly at this point. And um, he called it Kryptonite Molly. And I specifically remember him saying that somebody stole his dog named Nugget. And as a result of them stealing this dog, he was sitting on a whole truck or a Penske or a budget rental truck full of pot and he's refusing to sell any of it because until he gets his dog back. So listen, I don't know what that to say about that, but I specifically remember the dog's name. When John Paluska scouted the site months earlier, Several parts of the pasture's natural layout were obvious from the start. We always factor in the direction of the sun, but there was also um, just that there was a very obvious point to put the stage in that one big kind of almost circular field, you know, with that amazing tree. Um, It just it was all so I remember, you know, just as a side note. The moment we, you know, we're walking the grounds, just, you know, whenever you go to a site visit for one of these festivals, you're just, you're slowly getting to know a place and sizing it up and slowly certain things start to become clear. Like, okay, this is definitely where, feels like where the, the stage and the concert area wants to be or whatever. And it was so clear. It's like, this tree has got to be in center field, basically. If the stage is at home plate, this huge, incredible kind of vortex of energy has got to be in center field, you know? Um, and that was that sort of defined the whole thing. That giant tree was the big cypress, perhaps not of the reservation, but certainly of Fish's Festival. That gravitational center also happened to grow along the banks of an irrigation canal that divided Jack Motlow's cow pasture. It was here, between 3rd and 4th Avenues, just north of the front, that they would set up the festival essentials, food, first aid, merchandise, ATMs, and a bank of payphones. These essentials were centered around the festival's main visual installation, the Delta. Here's Trey. There was the Delta, which was the city of antique houses that were being overcome by nature. It was like Victorian houses. Lars, the genius Lars Fisk, thought of this. That represented in his mind, at the millennium, the futile attempt by humans to overcome nature and something that he said that he used to see in the south a lot with these beautiful old ornate buildings that are overcome by moss and stuff so he built this 400 foot long boardwalk and and enough time in between sets for people to like ponder this and explore through the houses and stuff and you had to go over that bridge to get to the to the delta The Delta was the creation of the visual design team of Lars Fisk and Russ Bennett. While Bennett was rooted deep in the Vermont weirdo soil, Fisk was a younger artist, graduating from UVM only three years before Fish drafted him to work on the Clifford Ball. Since then, his work has been featured at New York's PS1 and elsewhere, including the cover of Fish's Round Room in 2002. As Trey Anastasio remembered, it was Fisk's vision that helped raise a gothic city from the swamp creating an elegant facade along the banks of the canal. Designer Lars Fisk remembered its origins. When it came time to think about doing a festival in a swamp on an Indian reservation in the Everglades, 
what interested me was the the location and the the feel of the place as far as its relationship to the Seminoles and uh, that raw swampiness that was so foreign to me and um, and foreign to your your average concert goer experience. So so you know we in thinking about the place as well as the event itself having to do with this momentous uh, New Year's Eve, the turn over the millennium, of course the, that element of time came into, into mind as well. But turning an irrigation canal into a waterfront boardwalk for a gothic swamp city took a bit of work. Yeah, I mean, it involved, like, rerouting some of these irrigation canals and the, and, and in, the, in that particular spot, we actually ended up enlarging one of them for use as our, what we call the delta. So we made what was an irrigation canal into a, a much wider um, river-like water body. Ragtime bands played in the Delta facades, and benches and other spots were invitations for visitors to sit down and hang out. After dark, colored lights illuminated the installations, giving the strange city an even stranger tint. As visual designer Russ Bennett remembered, the all-night aspect was another new part to the Delta. One of the other things uh, that we did for the first time at Big Cypress was, um, in the previous festivals, we would do our artistic village and all of that stuff inside the concert venue. So the campers would go back to um, their campsites, wherever that was. And there was all the logistics of support and medical and portlets and all that kind of jazz but at big cypress we made a conscious uh decision and effort to um go out into the campground and create this hub of activity that was 24 hours a day and uh had it had a marketplace in it and we built a cool building for that and um that, that really changed the dynamic. Integrated into the life of the campground, the Delta was a hub for the lost civilization of Big Cypress. It also featured aspects of the not-at-all-lost actual occupants of Big Cypress. Nancy Motlow and Connie Gowan sold arts and crafts, while Sonny Navaquaya performed on flute. How did the festival affect the Seminoles, about 500 of whom live way out here, the Seminole Tribune asked. The Big Cypress campground was closed to the public for more than a month. Billy Swamp Safari and the Atathiki Museum were closed for a week. If you weren't a tribal member or employee, or didn't have an airtight story about hauling cane to Miami, you couldn't enter the reservation from the north. Much effort was made to limit the concert's impact on the tiny Seminole community. It worked. Lars Fisk remembered one more subtle update to the Delta concept that wasn't made until they got on site. I think one of the brilliant notions that we came up with at this particular festival was, aside from all the fabrications and efforts that we had made to create these sort of follies of architecture, it, it became apparent that the swamp itself was this incredibly alluring place. So we situated our, our little delta, our, our fabricated boardwalk city, right next to the edge of, of, of the um, jungle-like forested area. And we, it occurred to us, well, we could, just, we could just cut a path into this place and very minimally create touches of, of light and clearings here and there and just really allow people to just sort of enter into it and and explore it as they as they'd like and it was an incredible success with so many of our guests camping out in that forest and and creating for themselves their own experience the back of the concert field itself became home to an idea that evolved from their original concept of encircling the concert site in a wall of ice, which we heard about in the last episode of After Midnight. Brad Sands remembered it well. In particular, my favorite was the um, ice pyramid, which was basically right inside the venue. And, you know, 
it was hot. So the idea was to do something cool with ice and be like this kind of weird, like, wow, look at that, you know? And people could climb. But you know, somehow, like, we didn't really realize that people would climb on it and start just slipping and falling down. <laughs> you know, it was a disaster. I mean, yeah, like, I think, like, within the first 20 minutes, like, three people got hurt. Someone else who recalled the ice pyramid all too well was an 18-year-old New Jersey native named Sharon Van Etten who attended Big Cypress with her siblings a decade before she began her career as an acclaimed singer and songwriter. Walking around the campground, she told The Guardian, she realized that, quote, they called it Big Cypress because there's only one tree on the whole reservation, one tree that has ice blocks under it, shaped like stairs, where all the, I'm sorry, dirty hippies were sitting and sweating all over. It was so disgusting. Russ Bennett admits it wasn't the design team's brightest hour. So we built a pyramid of ice um, and colored it and this and that and the other. And it was like wildly, it was very slippery. It was dangerous. It wasn't the best idea we ever had. Backstage, the crew from Thin Air was having fun exploring. There was a swamp back there and we went back there a couple times. You know, obviously we wanted to see, like, you know, swamp animals. We wanted to see alligators, you know. So we were probably doing exactly what they told us not to do and going back in there looking for actual alligators. And I can't remember if we saw them or not, but let's just say for let's just say that we did. Um, and then we would use those, we'd try to get those vehicles to go out into the lots, back up in the, you know, in Limestone and some of the other festivals. You know, having access to a golf cart was like a very coveted thing. Like you'd want you you'd want to have a golf cart or try and hitch a ride on a golf cart. And those and these guys had gators down there. It's like a golf cart with giant mag wheels, and it's got like a little flatbed on the back. It, it, they had like four wheel ATVs basically, and instead of the instead of the golf carts because it was swampy and i i can just remember how badass everybody riding around the gators were we were, we were trying to you know we were trying to like reconnoiter a gator um to move around in and trey sure did love his gator i had so many friends in the campground and i had a um i had a gator everybody had golf carts but i had a gator i had the mag daddy and we went riding around visiting people in the campground and you had a map and all the roads were named and everything it's like a city if you were wandering the campgrounds at Big Cypress, you might have seen Anastasio go by with lyricist Tom Marshall riding shotgun and thin air radio on. We were driving around seeing everybody in the campgrounds. It still was at this point where it was like it was big, but it was personal. I knew everybody. It's weird. It did feel that way. Remember how much you were with me? Yeah. You in, were driving in around? In the car, yeah. Every person was, yeah, it was, it was your friend with everyone else. Yeah. yeah. You're like, oh, there's a, you know... <laughs> Oh, there's Lars, and there's, you know, and like the pizza guys are there or something, like the, you know, flatbread, flatbread. pizza guys or yes. something, or, you know, oh, I know those guys, they're from... Yeah, we watch them make their oven that they bake pizzas in. Yeah. Yeah. Everywhere you turned, it was, and we just drove around the whole time, and it was, you know, Big Cypress was almost like of that wave, of the 90s wave, like a band of outsiders that extended to this, the number had grown, but the feeling had stayed the same from like Nectar's, and it felt like that. We planted trees, palm trees, and 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 Chief Billy was so into it. All the Seminole Reservation, they were so into it. They were hanging out by the pool, taking in, us up in the helicopter. In-ground pool. And then we wanted an in-ground pool, and they are like, well, that's really hard. And I was like, well, just put a above-ground pool and build dirt up. In the ground. <laughs> so they like made it look like an in-ground pool, and it's probably not. And it had grass around it. But it had it. people all like in bathing suits. The whole time. Lying around drinking they had special cocktails or whatever it was yes. and like you know and, and food and friends all day long it was just amazing number of of um trailers uh put in the exact right configuration where you guys like had the inner core as soon as you got off stage you're like in this party with your best friends yes. everywhere you turn right. there was like another layer of your best friends yes <laughs> like yeah. everywhere i went and then i'd go out into the audience and like there's more of my best friends like all these people around and then that circle of rvs that you're talking about yeah that's the thing i remember yeah because i remember being in it and like being in the rv and like everybody's like 
cranking music and partying and like hanging out. Everybody's there and hanging out and it's, it's still going. Like the show hasn't ended. Yes. And then I remember like walking over. And then we and you would jump in the fucking gator. Yeah. And like go down all these roads on this gator, which was just so fun in itself. Yeah. Just out go, and like with the map. Going would, outside of the compound was fun for you because yeah. you're like in the gator and exploring. It was amazing. Like with the map? Yeah. And it's like, let's go to, they all had the roads, all had names. It was yeah. like going through New York. We're like, oh, I know somebody. Oh my, you know. You had to take me to know, the Elvin Woods. Captain Kevin is on. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we go take like a left and a right and see some people. Hey, man. And then we'd like go hang out there for a while. We go back to the compound. The Big Cypress site map featured a prominent four-panel display for thin-air radio. In bold print, it gave sound advice. Keep your radio on. No one can quite recall if the following incident occurred at Big Cypress, and no one's yet found the tape. So we're going to go ahead and let thin-air DJs Tad Cautious and Huevos Rancheros tell the tale. We were playing, I had this CD of... Led Zeppelin drops where it was like, this is Jimmy Page and you're listening to the greatest radio station ever, blah, blah, blah. Or like, this is Robert Plant, you know, this is from Led Zeppelin. Keep on listening. So we would just drop those in. And um, I guess I played the one that said, this is Jimmy Page. It was this recording that um, I think maybe Rickshaw or one of the other guys, or uh, I think one of the other guys had found this recording of Jimmy Page saying, this is Jimmy Page. And in his, you know, proper English accent. And we just thought it was hysterical. And we would be playing it over and over and over again. Like at all hours of the day and night. This is Jimmy Page. And it would, or maybe like followed by stuff like riff or something. I was DJing once and uh, Trey and Tom Marshall burst into the trailer. And they're like, we need to get on the microphone. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, okay, sure. So open up a mic and they you know, have their finger in an ear and are like, have this harmony completely worked out where they're singing a song that goes, this is Jimmy Page, this is Jimmy Page. And they're like blending in harmony. And then people in the trailer start to sing along. Um, and then it was, listen to me. It went from this is Jimmy Page to listen to me change to listen to me page. So it, <laughs> it was a very improvisational vocal jam. But um, it's shit like that that would happen in the radio trailer. It wasn't all good vibrations in Florida sunshine. For starters, there was still the ever-present threat of alligators. As former road manager Brad Sands recalls, it wasn't just a rumor. There were gators in the campground because it's the Everglades. And I think that there was a guy, like, they were on patrol for them and stuff. And I think they caught, like, two of them or something you know, on the outskirts, so to speak. But they were never, like, rolling down, shake down in the campground, which would have been really funny. There were definitely reports of them, and I think there were a couple of them removed from the site. But they may have even been removed, like, before people got there. But besides the giant reptiles with the jaws that chomp, there were other weird vibes afoot. The scene in the campground was also a rager. While there might have been a shortage of pot, other substances were more readily circulating. It was in 1998 and 1999, in fact, that MDMA overtook LSD on the Monitoring the Future report, an annual survey of high school seniors intended to measure national drug use, and a trend that was certainly mirrored in parts of the massive fish parking lot scene, as our correspondent Stephen reports. The positive vibe was, you know, it was a good festival, but the negative was, if you don't remember, or weren't around that time, there were people there that were not for fish. They were just there specifically to get high and sell drugs and you know you would think that that would be normal at every festival but that it was rampant uh we had people behind us who we could overhear them talk they were up the entire festival they were on meth and they were just they were selling drugs and it was just a mess and they were nice people and they kept to their space but they did. They definitely proclaimed themselves to be there specifically for business. So I was taken aback by this because, yeah, you got a, a a vibe that was transforming a little bit. The drugs were getting real heavy during that time. The and the type of drugs were changing during that time as well. It was getting more synthetic, but that it was pervasive throughout the festival. Other people were more mannered in their pre-millennium strategies, like my buddy Andrew. 
I'm a Jewish guy with a Jewish digestive system, uh, as I imagine many fish fans are, and I was kind of dreading the whole way down there what it was going to be like to be there for three days and have to use a port of uh, porta potty. So we were camping, and I remember, you know, thinking, okay, I, I, I'm not going to have to use it very often, but at some point I'm going to have to figure out a, a place to go in and go to the bathroom rather than just going in the woods, for lack of um, being a little bit more uh, more clinical in my description. And at one point I saw a gentleman cleaning out the porta potties um, or he had a, a uniform on that had the name of the porta potty company on it. And I, I asked him what time they cleaned them, and he said, I think it was either 6 or 7 a.m., and I set the alarm on my wristwatch for 6 a.m., woke up as they were finishing cleaning them, went in, did my business, went back to my tent and went to sleep. And that was the only time I went into a porta potty the entire weekend, and it was spotless. And I have to say, a very worthwhile investment of my time. At Lemon Wheel, in 1998, Lars Fisk had stacked portalettes into pagodas in what they called the Garden of Infinite Pleasantries. The portable toilets were a motif at fish festivals, and for good reason. A constant part of even the musicians' discussions. John Fishman remembered the intense planning behind it all. I remember those conversations sitting around, uh, sitting around the, the meeting table at, at the office, um, and Trey saying, we want this to be the best physically the best experience for people too that was even part of it like right down to the nuts and bolts where it was what's the the standard legal whatever required you know per porta potties per however many people you know then we want to double it make it as comfortable as possible richard is also richard glasgow is 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 a a genius about that and, and obsessed with planning and people's comfort and, you know, if you think about if anybody was at Magna Ball, um, I remember the hundreds of hours that he spent planning where to position certain vendors and the campgrounds. And he takes great pride in that. There was just so much effort that was put into that, so much concern. And I think we felt like this party was for our friends. However long it had taken people to get to Big Cypress, However they were enjoying their camp out, the doors opened on the concert field on early Thursday afternoon, where festival goers could ride a double Ferris wheel or get an aerial view in a hot air balloon. And finally, at around 5 p.m. on December 30th, it was time for fish. Fish and Ben and & Jerry's both came of age in the 1980s in Burlington. Their partnership began in 1997 with the creation of Fish Food, and both are still thriving. We're proud to have Ben & Jerry's as a sponsor for After Midnight. As you may know, a portion of the proceeds from every pint of fish food sold goes towards the Waterwheel Foundation, supporting environmental organizations with a focus on clean water and land conservation. To learn more about Ben & Jerry's work with Fish and the Waterwheel Foundation, you can listen to Under the Scales, episodes 41 and 54. For the past eight years, Vermont-based Fiddlehead Brewing Company has celebrated the art of unique and improvisational beer making. You may have had their beers at fish shows in the past, and hopefully you'll try one in the near future. When you visit them in Shelburne, you can sample one of 12 fresh beers on tap, including the classic Fiddlehead IPA. Fiddlehead reminds you to blaze on. Fish played from midnight to sunrise on December 31st, 1999, which is what we're here to talk about, really. But sometimes lost in the shuffle is that the day before, they played for nearly five hours over three sets, putting it well in the running in the list of longest fish shows ever. As they say on TV, you do the math. The relatively recent Anastasio Marshall song, What Are in the Sky, opened, and with fine reason, featuring a topical reference that has likely been cheered for during every subsequent performance of the song. Close the shutters, draw the shades, 
filter out the Everglades for Sunday evening They weren't done with the topicality, as Scott Bernstein of Jambase remembers. So as the traffic jam grew and we finally got into this site, there was lots of talk amongst me and my friends, and I'm sure plenty of other crews, that Fish would in some way reference the traffic that had gone down. And my mind went to, they're going to open with Slave to the traffic light. And lots of other people were of the same opinion. So when they opened with Water in the Sky, with its line about the Everglades, which got a huge reaction, and then they played Light Up or Leave Me Alone for the first time since the 80s, it took me a few minutes, but then it hit me. They're covering traffic. That's brilliant. And so as a huge Fish fan that never thought he would see Light Up or Leave Me Alone, that was such a special moment for me. The set also featured the first performance of Taj Mahal's Karina since the 80s, the sort of classic rock deep cut that was part of Fish's stock and trade on the Burlington bar circuit during their early days. As their jams and original songbook grew and stretched in the late 90s, old covers materialized out of the air for all sorts of reasons. Just as often, new ones materialized in the backstage practice room, or in the case of Big Cypress, practice trailer. Fish's only musical guests at Big Cypress appeared during the first set on December 30th, and two of them were bona fide legends, though for very different reasons. The first was Chief James Billy himself, who, in addition to being a decorated helicopter pilot, alligator wrestler, traffic jam wrangler, and Supreme Court battler, was also a songwriter. I'd like to take this opportunity to say, Chi Hantamu. Say it after me. Chi Hantamu. Wow, I've never heard so many Seminole Indians in my life. The other legend had already played with Fish a few previous times and was most recently seen with the band in Las Vegas in 1996, in the midst of a high-kicking chorus line and the entirety of Primus. Improbably, bluegrass legend John McEwen of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band turned up on stage with Fish at Big Cypress, which might sound like one of Chief Jim Billy's tales, except that it's all right there on tape. Seminal liaison Pete Gallagher remembered how it happened. He, at the time, he happened to be there because he was the producing James Billy's... Uh album. He put out an album called um, Alligator Tales. And um, he's, 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 a great, he's a great songwriter. He, we used to put on country music shows at the uh, at the rodeo arena in Big Cypress, and um, we called it Fire on the Swamp. And we would have, uh, we had John Anderson, and uh, and we had John McEwen was, was there one year. You know, Waylon Jennings, uh, just whoever, whoever, I think we put on eight or nine of those. Every, uh, I think every October we had for several years. Um, so, um, and, and that's why I think McEwen was there because McEwen met him and he really liked his music and he, he put in a bid to, to do a professional um, al- album, which was put out and it was nominated for a Grammy. And after the legendary chief and legendary bluegrass musician departed, Fish spent the remainder of the evening happily running down old favorites and new. It was a typically Fish mix. There were songs debuted a few months earlier, like Gotta Jabu, a happy looping groove from the band's album-in-progress Farmhouse. And there were jams that had anchored the band's sets for years, like a fog-machine-drenched mic song. As always, Fish were on their own creative path in 1999. While the artistic periods of mini-bands might be divided by albums or personnel changes, Fish followed their own lines. The creative explosion that had begun in 1997 had, so far, yielded two studio albums, 1998's Story of the Ghost and 1999's Sick at Disc, built around studio jams. The spillover spilled into the Trey Anastasio band, formed as a trio in the spring of 1999, which in turn produced its own spillover into Fish's repertoire, 
Just as Fish were beginning to record their eighth studio album at Trey Anastasio's new Barn Studio in Vermont. In the fall of 1999, they released a live box set, too, Hampton Comes Alive, recorded the previous year in Virginia. The space funk jams of 1997 had stayed both spacey and funky, but in 1998 had begun to curl increasingly towards the ambient. By 1999, it seemed like Fish could flip a switch and float away for a few hours at a time. For Fish fans inclined towards wondering, there was still plenty to wonder about in the wee hours after the first full day of music at Big Cypress. From the stage, Trey Anastasio addressed some questions, but left even more open. Before I came out, I was just things I wanted to clear up. First thing I will clear up, uh, one very quick thing is that, um, for those of you making plans, when we do this uh, tomorrow night, when we do this all-night set, that that is... <laughs> a lot of people have been asking asking us backstage if we're going to take breaks and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's a genuine all-night set, and we will not be leaving the stage. <laughs> and we're going to have a portalette on stage, but you guys can just use the ones on the edge. I think a lot of people spent a lot of mental energy wondering, what are they going to do? Are they just going to improvise for seven straight hours? Are they going to cover a whole album? Are they going to cover their own albums? You know, what is it going to be like? I remember people speculating that they were going to do a full game end set, um, you know, maybe with character actors or something like that. I mean, so much seemed like it was on the table. On the next episode of After Midnight, we'll break down what happened just before midnight, get a terrifying view from inside the airboat, and stay up all night with fish. After Midnight, Fish at Big Cypress is produced by Osiris Media. Executive producers are RJB and Tom Marshall. After Midnight was produced, edited, and mixed by Matt Dwyer. Written and narrated by me, Jesse Jarno. Production assistance from Christina Collins. Interviews and production assistance from Jefferson Waffle. Art by Mark Dowd. Music by Amar Sastry. Thanks to Fish, Red Light Management, and to all interviewees. Thanks to the fans who submitted their stories, including Stephen Grip, Patrick Hickey, Mark Blitz, Philip Schuster, Bethany Austin, Greg Netzarim, Tano, Jen Chadbourne, Josh Silverman, Mike Palmer, Dylan Behan, Rock, Scott King, Tim Pollock, Andrew Peerless, and Chris Dolmetsch. Until next time. Cyprus is a sovereign nation, which allowed festival attendees and organizers to experience this event in a setting outside the dominion of the U.S., but eventually everyone had to head back to reality. We're lucky that in the United States we have Headcount to help make sure festival and concert goers are in the know about how to be politically active and support the causes they stand for. Headcount is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that works to promote participation and democracy through the power of music. Headcount stages voter registration drives at live music events and runs the Participation Row interactive areas at festivals, through which they have raised over $1 million for various causes and registered over 600,000 voters. Since 2004, Headcount has helped register voters at fish shows. Next time you go to a show, say hi to Headcount and learn more or register to vote at headcount.org. Backline is the music industry's mental health and wellness resource hub. Launched in 2019, Backline aims to give music industry professionals and their families quick and easy access to mental health and wellness resources. We've lost so many amazing artists too early, and we're glad that organizations like Backline are here to help connect artists and their families with professionals who can help them find the right resources for them. They've already forged amazing partnerships with leading music-related organizations, and we're happy to support their work. Check them out at backline.care.